0: The inspiration for this particular podcast is uh, the fact that uh, Sweden is taking up the chair of the OVC for 2021. We have a debate about that. We also have a long-standing dialogue you and I on the uh, SDS project, the uh, uh, European perspectives uh, in terms of Swedish security, um, which is relevant for the, for obviously the OVC. Uh, uh, situation as well. And uh, this podcast is uh, intended to sort of harvest some um, thoughts that have uh, come up during altogether five or six podcasts that I have uh, done with, um, uh, I would say, rather eminent ex- experts on, on uh, security, defense, and, and the OEC, and particularly the military dimension of the OEC, uh, during the last weeks. Uh, those people are in, 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 uh, in the following order uh, from more official to more private. Uh, is the ambassador Fredrik Leutvist, who is a former OEC Ambassador of Sweden uh, um, to Vienna, and now the ambassador responsible for representing the Sweden as a uh, Stockholm as a capital in the structured dialogue in the OEC and also hybrid ambassador for Sweden. It is um, uh, Colonel Johan Hovinen, who is the uh, military expert in charge of the dialogue in Vienna uh, among military colleagues and former army attache also to Moscow. Fluent in Russian, uh, both Leutqvist and uh, Hovinen are fluent in Russian. Um, A third person uh, close to the official establishment is um, uh, Johan Engvall from the Swedish Defense uh, Research Institute who has conducted quite uh, a number of uh, important research endeavors uh, related to this. Also published several reports together with colleagues in the Institute supporting the Swedish uh, work in this domain and also participating in the dialogue in Vienna as an expert. The fourth uh, um, is uh, Captain Lars-Verdin, uh, uh, eminent uh, military ec- and I would say strategy expert uh, of Sweden, uh, who has just been uh, awarded the highest decoration from the Royal Swedish Academy of War Sciences uh, for his work uh, on strategy, but who has also a long-standing uh, experience as being a military expert in the OEC and to the European Union military staff. Um, he's also commenting upon this from France, where he's living, uh, also being a, an associated member to the uh, Naval Academy in, in Paris, which is a distinguished uh, recognition of his work, I think. And, uh, and finally, um, uh, Dr. Ian Anthony, who is um, uh, a corresponding member in our academy and uh, uh, former acting director of Cypri, and uh, nowadays uh, focusing on the European security program of that uh, important institute. Also supporting Swedish and other governments in, in terms of providing uh, facts about uh, the military developments of relevance to, to this part of the overseas. So it's quite a lot of of material has come out and I published it on YouTube and on SoundCloud, uh, people can listen to it. Unfortunately, it is in Swedish. So this is why maybe this uh, podcast is useful to bring out some of these things in, in, uh, in, a, in a, the English language so that other colleagues also outside Sweden can benefit from these thoughts. Um, So, maybe you want to say a word yourself about uh, how this fits into our discussion in the SES project. Yeah,
1: we're now heading full steam towards our concluding uh, report that is going to uh, set the uh, stage for uh, Sweden as it uh, enters into the next uh, decade. Uh, based on traditional uh, security policy instincts and uh, traditions, so to speak, in in the North European context of East-West tension, and the Swedish traditional policy of neutrality, by the way, from which Sweden has emerged in later years, uh, as everyone knows, to uh, stressing uh, cooperation with Western countries. in our neighbourhood, but also ultimately uh, the US, uh, and therefore providing a strong transatlantic link, which we have always had, but, but which we welcome officially now more, uh, more clearly, more explicitly than perhaps was the case in, in the in the context of the of the uh, of the Cold War. So, uh, what we are looking in, into now is to, uh, to um, paint the picture of Swedish choices, and then also uh, with a view to be able to recommend uh, action lines that are more than simply the overarching question about whether we should be a part of an alliance, uh, if in the, and if so, NATO, obviously. Uh, and or whether it is uh, sufficient for us to be actively involved in the security development and developments in Europe. Uh, The point of departure, of course, is increasing uh, question marks pertaining to the transatlantic link in various ways, although there will be another change now as a result of the change from Trump to Biden era uh, policies. But you never know, and in all likelihood, there will be uh, new questions about this as we come closer to the next presidential elections in, in 2024 and the midterm elections before that. So so we, um, we Europeans need to be on guard for all sorts of developments there. At the same time, you still have the old and aspects of a new threats from our neighboring Russia uh, which is our neighbor in the Baltic Sea region uh, and behind uh, Russia behind in a geographic sense uh, you have uh, also the emerging um, challenge from China. Hmm. So we're trying to uh, knit this into a, into a policy oriented study of where should Sweden uh, head to. As we move deeper into this decade, yeah. and uh, and your studies here, of course, focus now on on aspects within this totality of where are we? Also, as chair of the OSCE, in terms of conventional issues of uh, retaliation versus uh, what there is a Norwegian word for it? We we call it uh, confidence building, perhaps.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, there is always a balance to be struck there so this is where we are right now
0: yeah and, and uh, we have taken uh we have defined two paradigms in our southern dimension the report which probably is going to influence also our final uh, final study uh, for next year uh, which is relevant here one is the uh, the issue of conflicts uh, conflicts that's a very central topic in the oec work uh, both the uh, prevention of conflicts and the management and resolution of conflicts. Um, and, and the other one is, of course, uh, closely related to that, namely flow security problems of both human, virtual, and material flow security problems, uh, as illustrated by the COVID 19 as, as a very topical example. And those uh, two perspectives, we have developed uh, our analysis of that in the southern dimension and the overseas context is a good way to, to visualize the, the same type of uh, uh, links between the two paradigms uh, in the east-west or the uh, transatlantic and Eurasian space. We, Of course, uh, one drawback for the overseas format is that China is not part of the overseas, uh, which uh, is a bit artificial since uh, Japan is a partner, uh, but not, not, uh, not China. And, uh, uh, you, what we find when we look at the SES uh, perspective uh, in, in, as a project is that it takes a, it, as its point of departure that we have European perspectives on, on, on Swedish security. And, and uh, this is very um, important because obviously our main goal is to prevent war on Swedish soil. We would like to take up a defense in depth we have discussed that in the Southern dimension. The question is, in what sense can we take up defense in depth through various types of cooperative endeavors in the uh, the, uh, uh, East-West context? And here uh, you have made, uh, already uh, indicated a very important distinction between the cooperation you you have with your like-minded friends, so to say, And the ones where you, the dialogue and the the relationships you need to establish with those who are not so like minded with you. And the problem we have uh, now, as illustrated in these podcasts, is that we have had a development in the period after the Cold War towards less and less like mindedness. Uh, uh, Frederick Leutquist spoke in his podcast about that the the fact that the normative convergence we saw around the Paris summit in 1990 has uh, has, uh, started to to break up, to fragment uh, gradually over the years, uh, not only with Russia, but with also a number of countries on the Western side. Uh, We have problems in terms of the fundamental agreements on, on human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. And in terms of security policy, also a, a number of countries of major importance are starting to play their own games, so to say, more than they used to do during the period when there were two uh, military alliances facing each other on the strategic level.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, I would like to, um, to stress uh, in line with what you say that um, i have a, i think it is extremely important uh, in any security policy analysis context to distinguish clearly between on the one hand what is uh, what is uh, challenges to confidence and to cooperation within uh, like-minded grouping uh, and on the other hand as you say Uh, whatever uh, pertains to uh, security and cooperation, deterrence, reassurance, etc., vis-a-vis the other side. And I think that it is uh, a a way to describe any security policy to make this distinction, uh, a moving target, uh, always a flow of change uh, within alliances or groups of like-minded Uh, because there is always a tension within those circles, and also aspirations within those circles. uh, One country wishing to extend uh, its uh, cooperation further. Uh, in view, perhaps, of its perceived uh, of security challenge from the other side, and whatever is the other side, of course, is another question of definition and, and change over time. Mm-hmm. So there are flows here; uh, one has to uh, distinguish. Uh, and uh, in the case of Sweden, of course, it is a question of who, with whom, do we need to cooperate more uh, in order to feel more secure so that we can extend hands for cooperation on the basis of uh, self-confidence, so to speak, uh, on which peace ultimately depends. So these are key issues, uh, as you say, and uh, you can study the the, uh, history of uh, how things became what they are now precisely in these terms.
0: I I think that... uh... One can safely say that the Swedish uh, defense establishment, uh, represented by the defense minister at least, uh, thinks very much in terms of cooperation and and is trying to develop cooperative links uh, to establish uh, 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 both standardize uh, uh, the way we work with others.
1: Uh, but here, you here you are talking about cooperation with like-minded.
0: Yes, uh, and. and so th- that's, that's one thing. That's, that seems, uh, in a sense, unproblematic. But what is, uh, was really underlined, uh, Mikhail, in by several of, of my interlocutors was uh, the pessimistic uh, outlook that is, um, it is uh, adopted not least by our Polish and Baltic neighbors, uh, almost giving up hope about being able to establish a normative, uh, re-establish a normative convergence with the, with the Russia and uh, and some countries in the in, in the East, uh, even for the medium term future. So um, it is going to be a challenge, of course, already in the OeC context, but also in the EU context, and obviously in the in the in the NATO context, also given Turkey to find a way forward to get this balance between um, not only uh, deterrence and reassurance among friends, but also how you deal with, uh, with the relations with, uh, with Russia for the future. How can you reach a uh, joint posture on this? We can note that for instance, uh, Poland is succeeding Sweden as chair of the OVC in 2022. So these are discussions that clearly Uh, will have to uh, be uh, uh, undertaken already now when Poland is entering the troika of the overseas leadership.
1: There, I think you should add two things, uh, lars One is that uh, we should always uh, keep in mind that uh, now we are having, we as Sweden, uh, taking up the the presidency of the OSE and uh, in a couple of years we are uh, succeeding current uh, presidency of the eu germany there are some exactly. in between countries as chair of the of the european union or presidency rather. Uh, and so it gives gives us a, a sequencing of platforms here for conducting policies plus uh, one more thing uh, when you mention Poland, uh, you you always have also have to remind that pols may be pessimistic on, on whether how meaningful it is to try to reassure or to keep some element of convergence normatively with Russia, but polls at the same time are pessimistic it seems uh, concerning value community within the EU. Exactly. Uh, and this in itself is a reminder of the multidimensionality of security in Europe. And that's why it was so important for us to deal with the southern dimension, now because you have the simultaneous uh, wo- simultaneously working dimensions, uh, which uh, tends to complicate things uh, in terms of uh, reassurance and, and uh, uh, deterrence.
0: Yeah, and, and the, the, the strange thing is, and we discussed that in several of the podcasts as well, that uh, when we worry about the lack of normative convergence with Russia, uh, we are also worried about the lack of normative convergence with Poland and Hungary.
1: Mm. Within <laughs> and, the EU, yes. Within
0: the EU. Yes. And of course, it is the problem in NATO that there, there is also the Turkish element there. Mm. Um so that's, uh, that's one dimension that we discussed quite, uh, and, and that has set the stage for a, also a rather pessimistic conclusion that as long as we don't uh, settle the score on Crimea as being one of the most, the violation of one of the most fundamental principles of the Helsinki final act, mm-hmm. the respect for territorial integrity and sovereignty and so forth, uh, it's very, very difficult to continue to develop uh, uh, negotiations or, or even preserve agreements, political and legal, uh, legally binding agreements such as the CFE Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, the Vienna Document, uh, mm-hmm. the Political Military Code of Conduct, and all these very important documents in the Political Military Basket of the Overseas. It's very difficult to maintain them. And, and if, if you allow me, I will then immediately add another complication which several of uh, of, of, uh, my interlocutors stressed, that whereas we in the 80s saw possibilities to develop militarily significant and verifiable measures that could be the subject of arms control and even disarmament, including based on uh, inspection on the ground and aerial surveillance and so on, all this notion that we were possibly could even be able to, to make a surprise attack uh, a less uh, uh, cr- a credible uh, possibility for, for countries wa- wanting to y- use uh, uh, detente or, or disarmament to, to attack other countries. Uh, several people have said that we don't, we don't have the same m- military technological situation now as we had then we have a much more uh, we have a much more uh, mobile uh, military deployment capabilities and at that point in terms of missiles and of course drones and all that uh, we have much more difficulties to uh, determine Uh, which warheads are mounted on different platforms. Um, Many uh, countries stress the importance of unpredictability today, than was the case in the the 80s, when when the Western countries led by the United States stressed the need for transparency and predictability with one important exception, of course, as regards the United States, the US never accepted that naval movements should be subject of CSPMs or, or confidential security building measures and any kind of restrictions. But, but now in the West as well, the notion that predict, unpredictability is an asset is gaining ground, and not least uh, in the words of, of President Trump, of course. And all this makes... Um, the notion that we would be able to negotiate and agree on further, on, further militarily significant and, and, and verifiable confidence and security building measures, let alone arms control measures, seem more and more difficult. So you have this combination of the problem with the normative basis for the whole thing, in terms of respect for the principles from the Helsinki Final Act, and the, the military technological development, which makes it also very, very a tall order, so to say, to, to agree on these things. Plus, it's a uh, pessimistic view.
1: Plus the fact that uh, technical developments have uh, uh, have uh, affected also other areas of uh, power projection than purely military ones. Uh, in case, which it seems more, uh, more unlikely now with Biden, Biden uh, taking up the reins in the US, but still he too is faced with the uh, the uh, expiration of the START II uh, treaty uh, already in February, and in case that were not to be prolonged, pending new negotiations of some sort, uh, you uh, you will have a treaty treaty less. Uh, uh, situation altogether after INF and uh, now uh, open skies and all those, the Trump administration anti uh, international restrictions uh, on the America First policies. And that, uh, I think, is so basic to any prospects of dealing with the smaller factors of security, smaller yeah. in, in some sense sort of than the overall nuclear deterrence structure. And of course, you have a trend where where the distinction between nuclear and non nuclear or conventional dimensions is also superseded by technical developments, so that uh, launch or or yield is less important because you have precision um, and missile technology, et cetera, et cetera. But you need to re establish a climate of confidence sufficient for entering into new negotiations in the nuclear field and then to provide for for the for follow-ups in other policy areas.
0: Yeah, and um, of course, um, when you and I met uh, briefly uh, in Madrid, when you were a CSE no- negotiator in 1983, um, uh, we were at the position when there were no nuclear negotiations going on uh, at all. Uh, the, it was a standstill, and the Stockholm Conference uh, creating a, a forum to discuss the SPM was a sort of a surrogate uh, possibility for people to, to maintain contacts. This started a, a long period, which is still there, the, the meaning that uh, the West in particular never accepted uh, to discuss nuclear issues in, in, in the OSCE. And the uh, Russians uh, also, until today, maintain that real nuclear issues can only be discussed bilaterally with the United States. So so, so the nuclear issue is formally outside the OEC. but I would agree with you that it's a, it's a basic fact that the nuclear issue sets a stage for what is possible also to agree on in the OEC context. And uh, it's um, symptomatic, I think, in, in a way that when we worry about this from the Swedish perspective, what to do about the nuclear issues and what to do about the conventional military issues, we get closer to uh, the one major country which has been a close neighbour to us in, in both geographic and other terms for, for in the last years, more and, more and more visibly with Brexit and so on, UK becoming more distant in a way, transatlantic link becoming more question is Germany. So what you have are two parallel uh, Swedish initiatives. Uh, One, to to develop a cooperation with Germany on the Stepping Stones initiative on the nuclear level to see what one can do there to to maintain uh, or reestablish dialogue uh, wherever there still is no consensus of the basis for the negotiations, even or the dialogue. And similarly, on the OEC level, we have the so-called structural dialogue. And we discussed in the in the podcast um, uh, with several of the, the colleagues that the fact that after Crimea, the German government, uh, represented not only by Chancellor Merkel but also by the current uh, President uh, Steinmeier, who was then foreign minister, thought, now we have to do something in the OEC context to come back to a dialogue with the the East. And um, they tried a number of different possibilities. They had this uh, eminent group of experts led by Wolfgang Ischinger, and uh, with uh, Robert Cooper, Sir so Robert Cooper, as one of the main drafters, you know, did a, a very thorough analysis of the possibilities to move forward. And the only thing that was really left of that discussion in the end was the so-called structural dialogue, which is uh, which is not really uh, what I would call a walk in the woods. It's a more of a sterile uh, meeting of uh, hundreds of people sitting listening to. To presentations from the podium of someone from the East, someone from the West. And, um, and the question is, how do you go further on that uh, line now? And uh, there, um, uh, Germany is discussing, I think, uh, very closely with uh, a number of partners, mm-hmm. including with France, can can one do something also in the OEC context here which the switch will have to pick up uh, on this I didn't hear very much optimism actually uh, to be to be honest uh, I, I found that it was it was it has been uh, and it's been discussed during the uh, Cypri security days you can hear Wolfgang Ishing himself discuss it with the Elias on the on the on and there have been several other conferences. Uh, di- uh, virtual conferences on this in the last uh, weeks that indicate that this is not really as easy to move forward on that level either. Uh,
1: we'll see with what, the, what the Biden regime can do now to change this, but there is still the, the Putin regime in Russia and the Xi Jinping uh, regime type in China. What will it cost the West to try to force uh, Russia out of Crimea, mm-hmm. so um, so I'm pointing, stressing in line with what you say, to the reasons now for pessimism on the smaller issues, pending resolution to the bigger issues.
0: Yeah, I mean I I, I heard uh, testimonies about what uh, what the uh, what the discussions in Vienna look like uh, nowadays. Mm. I'm almost 10 years away from Vienna since I left in 2011. And and, and it's really, uh, what you have is is a discussion in the Forum for Security Cooperation introduced by Ukraine about the situation in Ukraine and with Crimea. You have a statement by the European Union for 10 minutes about uh, uh, the European position on this. You have an American statement you have a Canadian statement, you have a UK statement, and then Russia comes back in the end and says, "Whatever you do, don't even think about the possibility to change the status of Crimea. Crimea is a part of the Russian Federation with Sevastopol, and this is not up for the discussion." So, um, uh, so that's one uh, one thing, and the question is then uh, to again, refer to several of the podcast uh, messages there, is that who has time on his side in this development that we are talking about now? And can dialogue help to clarify uh, this issue? Um, Ian Anthony, for instance, stressed the fact that the West believes itself, and it can be proven probably through CIPRI data, to be massively uh, um, super, superior on the global level in military capacity terms. Uh, 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 United States has an overwhelming military expenditure, of course, and even if it, you know, whatever you, you say about that, uh, uh, there is no comparison with between the Russian military capabilities with the um, the Western global ones, and and uh, and now, of course, both China and India have overtaken Russia in terms of military expenditures. So, but on the regional level, Russia has thought for some time that it had time on its side; it could use uh, the um, use the. Unwillingness of Western governments to really invest into defence, uh, more burden sharing, uh, in order to improve its capacity in relation to the to to the to the regional arena, so to the regional theatre in Europe. But Ian Anthony noted now that there are 30 countries in the West cooperating to beef up their defence capabilities, and this is giving. Uh, this uh, work uh, together in NATO mainly is, uh, is producing results, uh, which will be increasingly difficult for Russia with its uh, difficulties in terms of democ- demography, dependence on, on, on uh, oil and so on. It will be increasingly difficult over time for Russia to, uh, to, to be on par with the Western developments of of capacity. So
1: Again, compare with the early 80s.
0: Yeah. So so, uh, time is not on the Russian side. And I think that's one of the most primary messages in this structured dialogue that we are likely to see, that uh, don't believe that time is on your side. And the second point is probably that Russia has, of course, for at least 10, almost 20 years, been advocating the notion that uh, the OEC should sort of promulgate and codify the existence of two separate security systems in Europe. One uh, under the leadership of Russia, and one under the leadership of NATO and the EU. And these two, there should be a European security treaty in the framework of the OEC, legally binding, which would sort of Uh, tell NATO not to enlarge, EU not to enlarge to to the East, and uh, to give, uh, to to recognize the Russian sphere of influence in the East. And of course, uh, Russia has uh, tried to test the limits of this, uh, including in the Baltic Sea, we have all the issue of incidents and so on. Uh, And uh, also here, uh, I, I think that the West will uh, would certainly uh, pursue a policy of trying constantly to remind Russia that this is a no-go policy and it's not going to happen. There is not going to be a recognition of in, uh, spheres of influence in that, in that sense. Uh, at the, and in particular, this is going to be the position of some countries uh, like Poland and the Baltic states that don't don't ever try to put us back so to say where we were 30 years ago um, in, in, in your sphere of influence what mm. the, what the West is going to do uh, in order to make this absolutely clear is however not so obvious mm.
1: um Again, I, I think it's a very rewarding uh, intellectually to compare with the early 80s because then, then too, the, the then Soviet Union was pushing for a European Security Conference. Uh, I remember that very vividly because they were very interested in, in having the neutrals and non-aligned at the time, being the agents of the persuasion of the West for that idea. In the end, uh, uh, it didn't happen. It became uh, instead going back to, or, or following up on the Helsinki Accords and then creating the, or pursuing the CSE, which later through the uh, conferences in, in Madrid first and where I was, and then in Stockholm, which created the OSC uh, based on uh, compromise. Mm. And uh, the, the, the concept of compromise is, uh, is, is so important. So, I mean, I've seen this uh, r- Russian interest or Soviet interest now, Russian interest uh, always playing out, but now adapted to contemporary conditions of tension, of lack of confidence and the existence of other uh, te- techno- te- techn- technologies including uh, social media and, and uh, cyber warfare etc to promote basically say the same things which is which is uh, asking for respect from the US by pushing having its own uh, deterrence and reassurance uh, variety uh, although th- everything became more complicated now under uh, less and less legitimate Regime, but which tended to coincide with similar trends in in the US. So um, it, it is a question of uh, so wh- where do we where do we think we are going and where do we think we can go in terms of persuading Russia to to step back and then to discuss compromise with it uh, and uh, eastern Ukraine I, I think it's incredible that you hear so little about developments in, in Ukraine, also politically, uh-huh. with the new president. And uh, it was a, a scandal issue and uh, and uh, and uh, an impeachment issue in the US, uh, which uh, the president of, of Ukraine was glad to, to not have, not living forever with. But you you, you don't hear so much of, of where, where Ukraine is heading and where it's actually moving nowadays.
0: I don't... Uh... Uh, I don't for my part would like would not like to prolong forever this podcast but I think there is one more uh, dimension that uh, is useful to bring into the picture and the fact that um, uh, Sweden has in its uh, program declaration for the chairmanship stressed that uh, it's going to defend the principles of the OEC, uh, That is, of course, means uh, the Helsinki final act just as much as the Paris Charter. And when we talk about the final act, we are talking about Crimea, basically. We are talking about the territorial integrity and not to have a slippery slope there. Uh, And at the same time, Sweden says it's going to work on conflicts. And when we talk about arms control, and confidence and security building measures, there is of course a link between that domain and the notion of peacekeeping, conflict management, conflict resolution. Uh, You have just participated in the podcast yourself on the the Balkan situation around Dayton. Dayton is one example of a regional CSPM uh, uh, agreement, which was made after the settlement was made, um, otherwise uh, the notion in the OC from the beginning of the CSE from the beginning was that you couldn't really have measures agreed on a regional level in the OC. Everything had to be equally applied in the entire OC area and and uh, I note that uh, from several of the uh, interlocutors in the podcast that uh, there is a um, there is a question mark whether uh, uh, we really have established the, the adequate principles for uh, promoting, for instance, peacekeeping in the OEC area as a, as a confidence and security building measure or as an arms control measure, as, or what, what you call it. Since the, even the latest illustrations we have from Nagorno-Karabakh shows that, Uh, Russia and now also Turkey believe that they have their own security system there and they would like to implement peacekeeping solutions as they did in Georgia before the war in 2008, namely under the leadership of Russian armed forces. Uh, And the Ulyanov's brigade was uh, deployed, a special forces brigade, specially trained in peacekeeping work, was deployed in no time at all, 2,000 people to Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, uh, in the context of the settlement or the provisional settlement there, uh, uh, and and this uh, reminds me of negotiations we had in Rome already in 1993 at the end of the Swedish presidency, when uh, when we failed to agree on uh, adequate peacekeeping principles for how to pursue how to how to supervise. Uh, the peace in, in, in various conflict areas in the overseas space, um, all the way from Central Asia to the Caucasus.
1: Mm.
0: So um, um, the Swedes hope uh, to be able to be useful on conflict management, conflict prevention, conflict resolution during the presidency. That's going to be a focus, I'm sure. But it, the question is whether it's going to be possible to develop principles in this area, in the structural dialogue with, with the East?
1: The peace in, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh in 92, 93, reflected, reflected Russia supported Armenian gains. Mm. And of course, peace depended uh, ever since on on whether, uh, and to what extent, uh, Azerbaijan would be able and willing to push for, for redressing that uh, perceived well, imbalance.
0: Willing, so have they that. Were, willing they were, probably, <laughs> all yeah, the time.
1: Well, We've seen that. Willing but and able. able.
0: But not able,
1: yeah. Well, before no, but now yes. But with well, with Turkish support this time?
0: It was, seemed, seemed to me at least, over the decades, uh, because I was involved also in the mid-90s on this, mm-hmm. uh, only a matter of time. Uh, mm-hmm before Azerbaijan was trying all the time to build up a capacity to redress the situation. So now, I mean, we have, I've been trying to brief you uh, and those who might listen or watch this uh, about the podcasts that I've been conducting with these, uh, these experts. Uh, I'm sure several of them would have liked to be more optimistic in their outlook. Uh, When it comes to negotiations, uh, the main problem is, of course, that we saw already in the Stockholm conference, where we started with CSPM negotiations, that uh, the Warsaw Pact uh, took its position, NATO took its position, and they both expected somewhere uh, uh, to end up in the middle between themselves, which they did actually, in terms of of the, uh, the final outcome in relation to the initial proposals. But here it's almost impossible to to proceed like that because uh, there is no way that uh, that uh, the West can accept, uh, in my view, uh, uh, e- e- budging away from the from the fundamental principles of the Helsinki Final Act and so forth.
1: Accepting new compromise.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, We had this situation in in Astana at the uh, OAS summit in 2010 when I was the EU ambassador, where. We were absolutely insisting on the EU side that uh, it's a well, take it to leave it situation, basically. Either you stick to the principles, the key of the OEC, or there is no agreement at all. So there is very little room for maneuver on the fundamental principles. And that makes it very, very difficult to move ahead at the current time. Mm. Uh, what you can do on dialogue is, of course, to establish uh, um, some sort of networking capability to understand the positions of the other side uh, and to increase uh, communication. And, And I know that it's a French stated position, it's a German stated position that things cannot be worse than they were during the Cold War when they could speak to each other after a war in some way, there was a possibility. And now everyone is, of course, waiting to see what the Biden administration would do about this. I've heard some uh, statements uh, off the record in various Zoom conferences in the last weeks that, of course, the Biden administration will see what it can do. But I also heard cautioning statements saying that, they are not going to do much unless the European countries, like Germany, like France and others, are going to show um, a considerable willingness to act to support uh, possible American initiatives in this area. And clearly, uh, there is a possibility that Sweden may play a role here. Um, uh, It's not unimportant. It's probably not, as you already indicated, to be seen in a 12-month perspective. It's probably also going to have to be seen in the context of the upcoming Swedish chairmanship of the uh, Council of Ministers in the EU in 2023. So uh, I would also, as you did already, caution against two short-time perspectives in this context.
1: Hmm. I would add to this, uh, lars that uh... It strikes me as, as interesting that if, when you compare to the uh, early days of uh, Helsinki, Madrid, uh, Stockholm, Vienna, uh, then, as I said before, it was based on an element of stability, which was making an element of uh, confidence possible, which in turn, et cetera, you had this positive spiral and now you don't have that any longer, uh, and then therefore you have to deal with the negative spiral, uh, vicious circle in a way, which needs to be stopped. Uh, But there is another difference uh, between uh, now and then, uh, which is the the intermediary uh, activities of the grouping of neutral and non-aligned states. Hmm. Which uh, I was myself very much involved in that in the early stages of drafting the mandate for the Stockholm Conference. Uh, to see that this is uh, here is the Western, very sterile position, and uh, here is the Eastern position, and then uh, a willingness and an expectation for the, for the Swiss and the Swedes and the Finns and Austrians and others uh, with some backing from, from then Yugoslavia before it uh, went down uh, the drain. And the small country to be the ones doing the busy work of a go-between. And there is there is no go-between uh, in a similar way now. It is more clear directly East and West. Uh, and if one asks, so cannot Sweden and Finland, who which are not uh, members of NATO, uh, similarly, play an active role, and the answer there, I guess, is that, um, yeah, maybe. But uh, on the other hand, in our contemporary balance between uh, deterrence and uh, and let's say reassurance, confidence-building measure, it is at least as important for us to be cred- credible, manifestly credible parties to the. the western uh, grouping of countries in its interaction with the uh, let's say east as it is to be uh, the the useful uh, go-between so um, one has to be realistic about the these things as well but for me it all ends up in whether there can be and whether there's an interest in in compromise and um, i would state it as. the uh, indispensable in position to say no that no, we cannot compromise on our core core values and our the core principles of the hitherto um, kinds of, of relationships that we built, but we built them in more favorable conditions, and now we have more unfavorable conditions. And then the question will arise: What is the price for peace longer okay. term? Uh, and this is uh, this is unknown territory because we've never been in this uh, entering back from the post-Cold War era to the post-Cold post War era, which we are now. And here, of course, Sweden is a small party and the OCE is a small forum compared to others uh, that pertain to the basics of uh, of nuclear balance, I would say. No, I mean, I, I
0: wrote to small people paper uh, a couple of weeks ago for a small group of people about uh, various options. Uh, one can look at, at the chair of an organization like this in two, three, on three levels, basically. One is the uh, very important role the Swedish Chair has in, in muddling through, so to say, just to help to solve the current institutional crisis of the, of the organization, to uh, manage uh, uh, the budget issues uh, so that the uh, institutions can continue to function and the missions can stay in place and so on. Um, There is also a more defensive posture as you just indicated. I mean, we basically are in a damage limitation situation. We had an agreement on something in the beginning of the 90s, which was precious and needs to be protected as far as possible. The third option I heard a Russian voice very recently is uh, the more ambitious one for the future, uh, looking for yet another summit of, of the OSCE. It may be in five years, so maybe at the at the time of the Helsinki 50th anniversary uh, in 2025 or something like that. Again, I would, I would be uh, cautioned very much uh, uh, setting such a goal without uh, having the conditions in place for something important to be agreed on, so to say. Otherwise, you might very much uh, have the risk of uh, seeing a reaffirmation of earlier commitments in reality, uh, uh, lowering uh, the, the agreements, uh, the value and standing of the agreements that you had in those. So so in, in my view, um, muddling through, And uh, damage limitation as a posture is not a bad one for the Swedish chair. Mm.
1: Let me then add only to say that it's also, uh, but I share your view on this this threefold distinction very much. Uh, It's also a question of uh, who will decide when? What will be the most relevant uh, platform for disca- discussion on these things? Yes, we have the OSC, fine, um, but maybe it has its shortcomings. Is that uh, if there is no real discussion on these real questions taking place or uh, parties being willing to conduct it there, does it necessarily mean that therefore there can be no such uh, talks at all? Mm. I think that uh, we have to look now uh, before the uh, end of the of the expiry of the start two, as an important criteria, because that is a must do for for the Biden uh, administration to to take a stand on whether to prolong it or not, mm. and that will uh, the prerequisite for a for a rational decision on that will have to be to link it in own talks with the. Uh, um, with the new administration involved fully, of what? What about the other issues? Yeah. What about what about the, uh, Iran? What about what about uh, INF? What about um, open skies? Asking the question of the U.S. What kinds of steps taken by the Trump that uh, that uh, Biden team can easily uh, fall back from, so to speak, or offer to behave, to be willing to. So there's a package there which will be the main focus next year.
0: And it's fascinating because it reminds me about exactly the situation we had 10 years ago mm. uh, um, during the famous or infamous uh, reset attempt by Obama uh, Medvedev still being president of the Russian Federation. Mm. We had a summit in Astana where I was together with uh, prominent American uh, negotiators. uh, uh, And at the same time, there were nuclear negotiations with Russia bilaterally on the new start. Uh, And uh, so so, in hindsight, of course, Americans who participated in those negotiations felt betrayed uh, uh, by, uh, by Russia in uh, and by Belarus, not least who violated the Astana agreement just a few weeks after uh, the summit was over. Uh, and I think many people will be careful not to be betrayed once more uh, on, these, uh, uh, on uh, trying to move ahead with new agreements on principles. So in 2010, the Obama priority was to reach the nuclear deal with Russia. Mm. Uh, and now, of course, uh, it's a much more difficult situation having China in the picture as well.
1: Mm. There is also, you, you, you might add, that uh, since uh, Obama time meant also Hillary Clinton time, and she was the one standing with the, uh, the e- eternal figure Lavrov, Uh, still active, amazingly enough, and saying a reset and and, then using that. uh, uh, But uh, rather rather soon afterwards, of course, she was the one uh, openly supporting the the street protests against Putin in 2012, which uh, created a sort of special hatred for her from him, and then therefore support of Trump in the uh, presidential. So you have the the political side of this this vicious circle, step by step. uh, Somehow explaining the hardening of positions and also the sterility of the relations
0: uh, from Mm. dating back from that time. And Hillary Clinton, of course, represents uh, uh, an image of the United States in Moscow, Mm. uh, uh, which is... um, just as Russians don't underestimate the importance of NATO, they don't underestimate the importance of the European Union, Mm. and they certainly don't underestimate the the efforts made by by American administrations, uh, symbolized by Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, to do what the Russians fear most, namely to, to destabilize not only the Russian society from within, But also to destabilize areas that are potentially friends of Russia Mm. uh, around the world, the so-called colored revolutions, uh, Mm. as has been discussed, for instance, by Oscar Jonsson in his dissertation that we have discussed fairly often in, in in our earlier podcasts.